Good morning, everyone. Friends, in our uh, first reading, uh, we are um, told about King David. King David was already anointed king of Judah, of the north. But what we are being told in the scriptures is that the tribes of all the tribes of Israel, the 12 of them, are coming together now. And they are accepting uh, he would unite them. And our second reading, St. Paul is actually uh, putting forth to you an ancient hymn of praise of Jesus Christ. And uh, in this hymn, uh, and he needed to do this because the Colossians were under attack and um, about false teachings, and he puts forth Jesus' role in creation. He was there from the beginning. Everything was made for him and through him and remains so in him. And then that hymn goes on to tell us about Jesus Christ and his role in redemption. And it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, reading. And um, our gospel uh, very quickly uh, tells us about how Christ reigns from the cross. And uh, my friends, there's different ways for me to approach our gospel reading on this solemnity of Christ the King. And um, I'm kind of torn about which way I should go uh, with this. I have... uh, so many notes <laughs> for you. Um, so, my friends, uh, I thought, how about if I give you a teaching on the scriptures? Uh, that'll be the middle ground for me. Um, so, as we celebrate this great solemnity of Jesus Christ, who is our King and our Redeemer and our Savior, um, I want to offer you three pieces um, uh, from the scriptures. And the, the first concerns the importance of kingship in the ancient Jewish world. And the second part of this teaching will be uh, about the structure of Luke's gospel and how he set it up and the reasons why he did it. And uh, the third will speak of some theological, and you've probably heard this and you might have, it might be new, and I don't mean to, it'll kind of leave you thinking, uh, but uh, we'll think of some of the theological ramifications of the different biblical accounts of the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. So, my friends, the Jewish mindset of kingship was crucial in understanding God's way. Remember, they understood God as a king. And, um, and kings, uh, they fight battles. They bring people together. Uh, they uh, have to uh, meet out justice. And um, this becomes their understanding of the way of God deals with Israel. And it's critical to their perception of what the Messiah would likely look like and what the Messiah would embody and in ancient time, as I said, the king's role was to provide many things um, in them, order and protection and unity so that the people could live in a time of peace and prosperity. And the Jewish people regarded king, God as king, a par excellence. But um, they would go on to demand an earthly king. Um, and uh, if you go into the history books and read, you'll see this. But if you go into the scriptures, you'll see how that worked out when They demanded of God an earthly king, and God gave it to them. (laughs) Uh, Didn't work out as they had planned. But of the earthly kings, we hear about King David in the first reading. And he was regarded the greatest of them because he conquered all their enemies at that time. He united them, as we heard in the story today. And so he ushered in a time of peace and prosperity. more than any other time ever known for the Jewish people. And so to their way of thinking, the king was a surrogate of Yahweh. Remember, they called God Yahweh. 
he was a king of Yahweh, or he was his representative. And thus, then the king should act like uh, God. And um, the word Messiah uh, literally means the anointed one. And in Greek, it is translated to Christos, which for us in English, Christ, the Christ. And since the Messiah was to be an anointed figure, it was commonly believed that the Messiah would be a king. They had hoped a king like David, who would once again unite them, who would liberate them, in this case from the Romans, and, um, uh, and restore true unfettered worship of God. Uh, they would have to not worry about anything. And, and friends, uh, this becomes important because when Jesus comes, and uh, they, don't, they won't accept him as Messiah because they have a different idea about what the Messiah, the anointed, the king, he was not acting in the way they expected. And um, this became a problem for them. The second point concerns, if you will, for me, the structure of Luke's gospel. And uh, from it we read today, um, and really throughout this year, because now we will go into Mark's gospel. Today ends Luke's year. We will move into year A, which will be Mark, the gospel of Mark. And uh, Luke, uh, almost throughout the whole year through his readings, um, he tries to be very con uh, consistent and he ties everything together. And he will try to tie together the whole of the gospel in primarily two ways. At the beginning of the gospel of Luke, and you should be reading your Bible, and you'll know this, is the Annunciation. And the archangel Gabriel comes to Mary and says that Jesus will be the ruler over the house of David. David is the king that they had been, that they loved so much. And it was, in the beginning it said that this kingship would never end. And that's chapter 1, line 33. And towards the end of the passage proclaimed today is the inscription we are told Luke tells us about the inscription on the cross. This is the king of the Jews. It's irony. Uh, the very thing that all the people and all the Pharisees and all the scribes couldn't figure out. Uh, here we have the ruler of the Roman uh, ironically putting it on there, and it's true. And um, Luke ties together the gospel in another way also um, with the temptations. Um, so at the beginning of Jesus' uh, public ministry, Jesus is tempted in the desert by Satan. Chapter 4, 1 through 13. Three times uh, Satan attacks him. And uh, Satan did this for a particular reason. He did this to find out if Jesus was the Son of God. And uh, we find that in Luke 4, 3 through 9. And Jesus never yields to Satan. Uh, he never gives Satan what he wants. And uh, this, uh, in doing this, it showed thereby that he was truly the Son of God. Go back and read the beginning of Luke and see what Satan was doing to him and Jesus' response to him. Then we have at the end of Luke's gospel, Luke introduces similar temptations by Satan again. Three times Satan tests him to see if now if he is the Messiah, to see if he is the king who has come to save the world. But this time Satan enlists others around Jesus to go about this. He worked through the ruler who put the sign up to see if Jesus had anything to say about that sign. He worked through the rulers that were around on Calvary that day 
at the foot of the cross who sneered and taunted him and said, He saved others, let him save himself then, if he is the chosen one, the Messiah of God. You see, it was a ten. Satan's using the people. Next, Satan uses the soldier who taunts Jesus. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Jesus does nothing. Finally, Satan uses the unrepentant thief. Not the repentant one. The repentant one is totally different. But the unrepentant one, clueless of the innocence of Jesus, prods Jesus for a selfish reason. Are you not the Messiah? Answer me. Save yourself and us. The scripture says us, but the Greek says me. That would be typical of that, <laughs> that thief. But as he did in the first three temptations in the desert, Jesus once again refuses to give in to Satan. He refuses to use his power to circumvent his father's will. This was his father's plan. This was his father's will. He remains true to the father to the very end of his life on earth. And under the most trying and difficult of circumstances. Rather than save himself, he freely lays down his life to save humanity. And finally, my friends, Jesus surrenders his spirit unto the Father. In this, Jesus demonstrates beyond any doubt that he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the King and Savior who has come. And we see then from the cross what appears to be other failure and disgrace. A king hanging on a cross between two criminals becomes the place of great grace. The success of the Father's plan. And redemption, not from a throne, but from a cross made of wood. Such power. My friends, it brings me to this third uh, piece. Um, it is one of theological interpretation uh, based on scriptures and traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. Luke's theology, the way Luke sees things and looks at it, would put forth that salvation and Jesus' sacrifice happened, yes, because there was sin, but more so as God's free and loving gift rather than an exchange for ransom demanded and paid. This gets very tricky. Paul, just by the reading today, but all of Pauline is in tension with this. Because Paul uh, would put forth that uh, if it were not for original sin, Jesus would not have to be incarnate and make his sacrifice and reparation for humanity's sins. You see what I'm getting at? The other holds that the incarnation was always a part of God's divine plan. And the Son assumed human nature to share the love of God with humanity and more fully and thus to unite human nature more closely to God. The other one says, nope, it was only because of sin. And uh, there was a, in the early church, there was actually a fight <laughs> about this. 
I shouldn't laugh. It's not funny. <laughs> it is for us because we look back in hindsight. But my friends, I am not, I am not smarter than those two saints that were fighting with each other. Not fighting, but in their putting forth their opinions. And I am not smarter than Mother Church. But um, it is not either or or. It is both. And indeed, how blessed is the human race, either way, to Jesus Christ be power and honor and glory for ages upon ages to come. Amen. Alleluia. Now, the homily was uh, different from last night. Last night, Jesus, I also was doing a teaching, but Jesus uses a word. Uh, I'll go quickly through it for you. Uh, so you don't say, well, he gave us one thing and them the other. <laughs> the repentant thief tells Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. First note, he doesn't say, take me there. He says, remember me when you get there. And the compassion of Jesus Christ. You see, uh, to the people of Jesus' time, Jesus switches the word. Notice what Jesus said. This day you will be with me in paradise. To the mindset of the people of Jesus' time, paradise evoked something. It evoked the Garden of Eden. Beauty, trees, harmony, peace where man walked with God in great love and peace. Jesus knows this. And out of the compassion for this repentant sinner, he says, you will be with me in paradise, offering compassion and peace to the man's heart as he dies, giving him that image. Hang on to this. Get through this. On this feast of Christ the King, of all the scriptures that the church could put forth, it puts forth this one. What appeared to be a time of darkness, of failure, of disgrace. But we know otherwise. And the church has gone through many things in these past 15 years. The church has suffered some things that it never imagined would ever happen. And it appears to be a time of darkness and failure and disgrace. Oh, scandal. The harm caused to children. But he is the king. He is the head of his church. He is the ruler of the universe. Maybe this is the time, once again, that the church is called to experience a death also, so that it may rise anew in a call to holiness, a call to all of us, but especially our leaders, to be like him and to rule over for now, the way he did, with humility, 
with compassion and mercy, causing no harm. To him, then, be honor and glory and power. And when I get lost in all of this, I look at you, all of you who love Christ, who strive for holiness, and it reminds me that there is good and the church is holy because its head is holy and its members, millions, just like you, have not left but stand for holiness and righteousness and testify to him, the king. I give thanks to God then for all that he has done and for all of you 